Good morning once again. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 20? If you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you this morning. We are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning, and we have come to chapter 19, excuse me, chapter 20. <laughs> now, John 20 focuses on the Sunday after Jesus was crucified. Many call it Easter Sunday here at Calvary Oak Grove. We like to refer to it as Resurrection Sunday, the day Jesus rose from the dead. Now, we've already looked at the events that took place that morning in detail. Spent several weeks looking at the morning of his resurrection. A few weeks ago, we looked at the events that transpired the afternoon of Jesus' resurrection as recorded in Luke's gospel. And only Luke records the events of that afternoon and that's in chapter 24. And now we come to the events that took place Sunday evening, as recorded by John in chapter 20 of his gospel. And I want to key in on verses 19 to 23, because in these verses, John records some things that all Christians have read. No doubt, uh, many in a casual way, uh, just glancing at them, moving on, not really understanding the importance of the things uh, mentioned in this passage the importance of the things Jesus does in this passage. First of all, let me just set the stage a little bit. Uh, John tells us some of Jesus' disciples uh, were in a room somewhere, probably the same upper room they were in three days earlier where they celebrated the Passover together, probably back in that upper room there. And um, who was with them? Well, there were ten apostles. Uh, Judas, by this time, had hung him, uh, hanged himself. Uh, Thomas was not in the room at this time. All right, He shows up next week. We'll look at that. Uh, but there were other disciples, the two disciples that uh, Jesus spent the afternoon with, as recorded in Luke 24, the ones that went to Emmaus and then came back uh, to tell the disciples what had gone on. You can read about that in Luke 24. So there were uh, a good group of uh, men and why were they in the upper room uh, hiding out that's what they were doing why were they hiding out in the upper room somewhere uh, in Jerusalem well I believe it was because they were terrified that the Jewish leadership and the Roman soldiers were coming to arrest them and crucify them next so they were hiding out let's look at verse 19 then the same day at evening being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, the Jewish leadership, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now, last week we said that we need to understand that Jesus' resurrection body was a real body made of flesh and bones, and yet... Uh, he had the power to pass through walls, doors, other physical barriers. Contrary to any known laws of physics as we understand them, someday it will be very clear to us what's going on when we have glorified bodies. Right now we're left to speculate. But as we noted last time, when Jesus first appeared to them in that upper room that night, they thought he was a ghost and were terrified. No doubt that was one of the reasons he told them the first time 
in verse 19, peace be with you. He was trying to calm their fears, all right? Then we read, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. In other words, they were glad when they saw it was the Lord. What John means, of course, is that Jesus trying to calm their fears, convince them he was not a ghost, showed them the nail prints in his hands and the spear wound in his side. And Luke records the events uh, that happened. Why don't you turn to Luke 24? We read this last week. I think Luke gives us just a little fuller explanation of what John records. Luke 24, starting with verse 36. Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened, and supposed they had seen a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Guys, what are you, what are you scared about? It's me. Why do doubts arise in your heart that it's not me? Okay? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see. Does a spirit, does a ghost have flesh and bones as you see I have? When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Jesus appeared to his disciples so that they would know for sure that he had risen from the dead, that he, the crucified Jesus, was now the risen Lord. It was himself. It was not a ghost. It was nobody else. It was him. And why was that so important that Jesus appeared to his disciples after his resurrection? Well, for one very simple, basic reason. It was important because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the central doctrine of the Christian faith. In fact, it's so foundational to Christianity that anyone who denies the physical bodily resurrection of Christ cannot be a genuine Christian. They call themselves a Christian, but there are liberals in the church who do not believe Jesus Christ rose bodily from the dead. They don't believe in the resurrection. They call themselves Christians, but I'm telling you they are not because the Bible is very clear. We'll talk about that more in a second. But um, in that regard, the resurrection is an essential doctrine of the Christian faith for salvation. Turn to Romans 10 for just a minute. I think verse 9 is a very important verse on this topic. Here's what Paul said. Again, looking at the idea that the resurrection is an essential doctrine for the Christian faith for salvation. Romans 10 verse 9. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, Paul said, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The implication is, and here are two the two main doctrines that you have to believe about Jesus to get into heaven. Here it is. If you don't confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, Lord of all, that he is God Almighty, second person of the Trinity, who made everything, the Lord of all. If you don't believe he's God in human form, not a God, not one of many gods, but the Jehovah God, second person of the Trinity, come to the earth in human flesh. If you don't believe that, 
and you don't believe that he rose from the dead bodily, you're not going to be saved. You are not saved. Look, Jesus in John 20, verse 21, which we're about to look at in a little more detail. I'll just introduce it to you right now. In John 20, verse 21, in that upper room, Jesus Christ is authorizing and, and commissioning uh, his disciples to take the gospel into all the world. Now, it wouldn't be limited to this group meeting in that upper room that night. But right now, those were the first ones he appeared to in, as a group. And so he starts commissioning them, and eventually it spreads, the commission becomes very broad and encompasses his whole church, right? But right now, he is um, authorizing and commissioning them to go into all the world and to preach the gospel of which his resurrection guys from the dead would be the central truth. Look, he knew that they would be greatly persecuted and many would face violent deaths. He said in John 15, if the world has hated me, they're going to hate you also. Master is not greater than his servant. I mean, they what they have done to me, they're going to do to you. So he warned them to be prepared. But he knew they were going to face great persecution, even violent deaths. And they needed a message, listen, to the unbelievers they would encounter as they went into the world to preach the gospel. They would need a message based on their eyewitness testimony of seeing the risen Christ. A lot was at stake. Any converts to Christianity uh, in a very short amount of time were going to be persecuted uh, vehemently by the Roman government. And so obviously when you go out into the world and tell people, look, Jesus, our Savior, is raised from the dead. He went to the cross, died for our sins, rose from the dead the third day. How do you know that? I saw him. He appeared to us. We saw him. Now, anybody could say that, right? Anybody could say they had seen the risen Christ. But as we're going to see in a moment, they backed it up. They backed it up. Let me just stop and say this, though. Our whole system of jurisprudence, and we've talked about this, I'm not going to belabor it. Our whole system of jurisprudence is built on eyewitness testimony. Even as, even as God established in his law, Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, God said, you must not convict anyone of a crime on the testimony of only one eyewitness. The facts of the case must be established by the testimony of two or three eyewitnesses at least. And yet the resurrection of Jesus Christ, listen, had hundreds of eyewitnesses who testified they had seen the risen Christ. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15 because Paul talks about this. First Corinthians 15. I'm going to pick it up in verse 3. Where Paul said, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that, all, and that he was seen by Cephas, Peter, then by the twelve, 
After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Most of them are still alive. A few have died. Verse 7, after that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. And yes, that took place uh, the evening of his resurrection in that upper room. He appeared to ten. Okay, uh, again, Judas by this time had hanged himself. Thomas wasn't there. So he appeared to most of the apostles that evening of his resurrection. Uh, then Paul says in verse 8, Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. And all Paul is saying is, I didn't see him that night. I didn't see him right after his resurrection. It was several years later when he appeared to me on the road to Damascus. Acts chapter 9 records that. But guys, as I just said, eyewitness testimony is what our whole system of justice, jurisprudence, is built upon. If, and I hope you never do this, but if two or more witnesses, uh, if two or more people witness you committing a crime, please don't. I'm just making a point, okay? If two or more people witness you committing a crime, you're probably going to be convicted. How about a 500 strolled into the courtroom? 500 eyewitnesses. What do you think about that? I think you're nailed. Now, that's how many saw the risen Christ at one time. I'm not saying that's the only group of disciples that saw him after his resurrection. Don't forget now, after he rose from the dead, he hung around on the earth for 40 more days. Acts chapter 1 tells us, teaching them the things of the kingdom before he ascended uh, to his father. All right? So he had time. He was moving around the Galilee, Jerusalem, who knows where else in that vicinity. But a lot of people saw him. Paul makes it a point to name a few. And he does say at one time he appeared to over 500 brethren, brethren all at once up in the Galilee. And not only did he appear to them, they made use out of that information, and they started going around everywhere testifying that Jesus Christ was alive. Now, skeptics and flat-out atheists claim, well, they lied. They lied. We've talked about this. Listen, nobody is willing to die for a lie. They might be willing to die for a lie they think is the truth, like Muslims who blow themselves up in marketplaces and things. So a lot of people who have died for lies that they believe was the truth, that's different. But nobody's going to die for a lie that they know is a lie. And I bring this up because there are those that believe that what happened was Jesus died in that cross and was put in that tomb, and somehow the disciples got into the tomb, past the Roman soldiers, totally impossible. But the disciples got into that tomb, stole the body of Jesus, put it somewhere, and then went around preaching. He had risen from the dead when he really didn't. They knew that was a lie. Here's the problem with that. When Rome started killing Christians who were testifying that Jesus Christ had risen, they were putting these Christians to very torturous deaths crucifying them, uh, tying them behind horses and dragging them up and down the Colosseum steps until their brains were dashed out, uh, 
putting, covering them with pitch and then lighting them on fire to light the Caesar's garden and so forth. Horrendous, torturous deaths. And at any time, if any of them would have recanted and said, no, I made it up. I, I never did see it. It was a lie. Rome would have spared their lives. None of them did. They all went to their deaths maintaining that they had seen the risen Christ. You know why? Because they all had. They all had. Look, I can't believe that at least one disciple out of the hundreds that were crucified and killed by the Roman government, I, I can't believe that if that not one of them when faced with that kind of death wouldn't have cracked under the pressure, spilled the beans, and said, no, we made it all up. Remember what Job uh, records in his book uh, that Satan said to the Lord? I'm sorry, uh, it was said in the book of Job, but about Job, okay, uh, when Lucifer appeared before the Lord. And um, Lucifer said, look, I can't get at this guy because you're protecting him. If you, want, you, know, you, you think he loves you so much? Let me at him, and I'll prove to you he'll curse you to your face because, you know, skin for skin, all that a man has, will he give for a skin. When a person's life is on the line, they'll do anything. Self-preservation kicks in. They will do anything to get out of death. Well, here we see these disciples. Um, they maintained that they had seen the risen Christ. And guys, you must understand that the reason those early Christians were willing to die for their faith was because, again, they had seen the risen Christ. And in fact, and the fact that they were willing to die for what they believed and the way they died. History records that many of these Christians, probably the vast majority, went to their deaths singing praises to God from the cross or somewhere else as they were being killed and praying for God to have mercy on their executioners. And it was because of the... Yeah, they were willing to die for their faith because they had seen the risen Christ. But the way they died. I mean, they could have died cursing their enemies, calling fire down from heaven upon Romans and enemies. They faced death with grace and love and forgiveness and God, the Holy Spirit, used that to work in the hearts of these, uh, of the people of the unbelieving world. Look, as I told first service, the people of the of the first century unbelieving world, um, many of them lived lives of absolute debauchery. Absolutely, they glutted themselves physically. They satiated their their lust for sex in as many ways as they could. It was the most debauched society you could ever imagine. A lot of these folks were wealthy and they had the means by which they could indulge their flesh anytime they wanted. But you know what? History tells us they didn't have anything to live for. You can only indulge your flesh so much, so often. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't give you a purpose for living. It doesn't give you any joy inside. It just satiates the flesh for a moment. And most of these folks had no reason to live even though they had resources and could have anything they want. When they saw these Christians who had a reason to die, that totally intrigued them. Because here they knew how empty they were inside. 
with all the material blessings, uh, material things, and all these things they had, they just had no reason to go on living. They were depressed. They were, you know. But here was a group of people that had nothing, yet they were singing as they were being put to death, praising their God. That was such a powerful thing for them to watch that witness. It brought untold thousands and thousands to Christ in the first century. Sometimes it's not the words we speak, it's the way we live that speaks the loudest. So first of all, in a very simple three-point outline out of, that comes out of verses 19 to 23, verses 19 and 20, Jesus revealed his person to them, that it was him, himself, raised from the dead. Secondly, Jesus commissioned his preaching to them. Verse 21, so Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. We call this the Great Commission. The Great Commission. The dictionary defines a commission in part this way. An authorization or command to act in a prescribed manner or to perform, or to perform prescribed acts, a charge, a charge. This great commission was given by Jesus to, listen, all of his disciples, uh, all those that would ever believe in him down through the centuries, not just, of course, those disciples in that upper room the night of his resurrection. Matthew records Jesus' commission to his church this way. Turn to Matthew 28, please. Now, this is right before Jesus ascended back to his Father. But he's still dealing with the Great Commission. And so, Matthew 28, verse 18, And Jesus came and spoke to them, his disciples, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What? Teaching. If you're going to go into all the world, the idea is preaching the gospel. And then after you get people saved, you teach them to observe all things I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The idea is, look, we go out into the world, we preach the gospel. When somebody gets saved, we don't preach the gospel anymore to them. We now teach them the scriptures. I feel sorry for people who go to these seeker-friendly churches. And every Sunday, it's the gospel. Every Sunday, it's the gospel. The gospel is wonderful. The gospel is beautiful. It's powerful. But once a person gets saved and now starts coming to church, they don't need to hear the gospel every Sunday. They need to be taught the word of God. Because they're never going to grow. They're never going to grow. They will remain perpetual babes in Christ unless, of course, they take it upon themselves to do their own study, which they should. But Jesus here is turning over his preaching ministry to his disciples. But along with that, is, he goes on to say, when you preach and they receive me, now you teach them. All things I have taught you, right? Guys, I've called this second main point in our outline in verses 19 to 23. 
to 23. Jesus commissioned his preaching to them. Because, guys, this commission was not going to be new or unique to the disciples. In other words, it wouldn't start with them. You need to understand the Great Commission, as we refer to it, was something that got started with Jesus himself. Something that his father had sent him into this world to do. And as he was preparing now to return to his father uh, in heaven after his resurrection, it was a commission he was now passing on to them from his father, which is why he said in verse 21, as the father has sent me, I also send you. You see, Jesus was first commissioned by his father to bring the good news of God, the gospel, to the people of this world. This shows up in John's gospel, I think, more than any other gospel. We've talked about this numerous times, how that over and over Jesus said, I only speak the words my father has given me to speak. I do always the things that please him. I, I say nothing of my own accord. I do nothing of my own accord. I only do those things the Father has shown me to do and speak the words the Father has given me to speak. All throughout John's gospel, Jesus made that clear. He was under a divine directive, a commission that started with the Father. Then he could, he, that the, the Father gave to Jesus who started it. And now Jesus is passing it on to his disciples who will continue it. And by the way, we are continuing it to this day. It's called the Great Commission, right? But I want you to understand this, this that Jesus was faithful in starting the ministry the Father gave to him, but then turned it over to his church to carry on. Turn to Acts chapter 1. I want you to see this. Acts 1, starting with verse 1. Now Luke, a Gentile physician, wrote the book of Acts. But of course he also wrote the gospel according to Luke. And we read here that he starts off by saying, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus, listen, began both to do and teach. He began it. Now, the former account, who's Theophilus, first of all? Many believe Theophilus was Luke's master. In those days, wealthy men owned their own doctors. They were slaves, many of them. But today, the doctors own us. But in those days, the wealthy owned doctors. Luke, at one point, had been a slave to Theophilus, who was his physician, personal physician. When Theophilus got saved, and I believe he did, he released Luke to accompany Paul on his missionary journeys because Paul had some medical issues. We think it was a, an eye problem, but there were some, uh, some other things. And to have your own personal physician accompany you on these missionary journeys was a great blessing to, to Paul. So Theophilus, um, you know, released Luke to accompany Paul. And Luke, in return, wrote a two-volume set, a two-volume set of documents called the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. And he talks about the Gospel being volume one and how in that it records, of course, the Gospels record the ministry of Jesus, right? And Luke says, look, I gave to you the former treatise, my Gospel, of all that Jesus both began to do and teach. 
He goes on, verse 2. Until the day in which he was taken up, send it back to his father, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering on the cross by many infallible proofs. He was seen by many, uh, having been resurrected. Many saw him. Uh, many uh, hugged him, no doubt, recognized, no, he's not a ghost. Flesh and bone, right? Many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days, as the 40 days from his resurrection to his ascension, and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So, Jesus' ministry is what was started. The Father had sent the Son to start something. To start uh, a minute, God the Father gave Jesus a commission to go into the, to the world, that area of the world primarily, preach the gospel, teach the truth of God. We would all agree that the ministry of Jesus was a supernatural endeavor con conducted in the power of the Holy Spirit. If Jesus' disciples were to effectively bring the gospel into the world, and carry on the ministry Jesus had started. Well, they would need the same power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus moved in, that was upon him. Listen, I'm sure that Jesus' disciples were thinking to themselves when Jesus first commanded them, commissioned them to take the gospel into the known world of their day. I'm sure they thought immediately to themselves, how are we as simple Galileans, going to take the gospel into Athens, Alexandria, Rome, you know, into the most sophisticated and learned places in the world, seeing that we're uneducated, simple farmers and fishermen, right? But don't you know, as somebody has once said, God's commandments are God's enablements. God's commandments are God's enablements. If God commands you to do something, he will give you the power. Whom the Lord calls, he equips, right? John 5, a guy that was lame, was it, I forgot the length of time, was it from the womb or for the last 38 years? You can read it for yourself. The guy hasn't moved in all those years. He's paralyzed. Jesus walks over, says to him, stand up, take, your, take up your bed and walk. Now, he didn't have the strength to do that. If he did, he would have gotten up a long time ago, right? But the idea is he willed to do God's will. If God gives you a ministry, if God gives you a commandment, oh, God, I can't do that. I, I can't stop drinking. I can't stop with the drugs. I can't stop with it. I can't forgive this person. You know, whatever it is and the Lord speaks to you, says you need to do this or that, his commandments are his enablements. Stand up, take up your bed and walk. He willed to do God's will and he stood in the power of God and walked away. He was giving these guys a monumental. They, again, these were simple, blue-collar guys, okay, as we call them today simple blue-collar guys. They weren't great intellectuals. 
They had no degrees from any university. And here Jesus was commissioning them to take up the mantle of his ministry and go into the world and preach the gospel and teach the saints. They're terrified. They're, 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 they're terrified at the thought of that. Which is why I believe Jesus said the second time, peace be with you. He said it in the context of telling them, I want you to go into all the world. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you, right? They were terrified. We would paraphrase, he said, peace be with you. Guys, chill out. I'm not sending you to do this monumental work in your own strength and your own ability. I got this covered. Okay, what are we going to do? He's not going to be with us. He wants us to go to Alexandria, Athens, Rome. We, well, there's no way. Chill out. I'm going to be with you. Literally, no. But with another person will be my representative. And that brings us to the third point of our outline of this section in John's Gospel. Verses 19 and 20, Jesus revealed his person to them. Verse 21, Jesus commissioned his preaching to them. And then verses 22 and 3, Jesus fulfilled his promise to them. Verse 22, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, let's hold off looking at verse 23, which the Roman Catholic Church uses to teach that Jesus empowered right here, Catholic priests to hear confessions and forgive sins. Let's hold on to that for a little while. We'll come back to it um, maybe next week. We'll get to it. Um, and let's just focus on verse 22 for the rest of our time this morning. When I say that Jesus fulfilled his promise to them, I mean the promise he made to them in the upper room the night before his crucifixion. Turn to John 14. This is the promise he made to them in the upper room the night before his crucifixion. Let's start with verse 15. John 14, verse 15. Now, well, let's just read it, and I'll say some other things later. He said to them, they're still in the upper room now. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, once I return to the Father is the idea, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be what? In you. That was the promise. The Holy Spirit at this point in John 14 was with the disciples. Jesus promised them at one point he would come inside to live in their hearts. And then we see in John 20, verse 22, he breathed the Holy Spirit into them. And at that point, the disciples became official New Testament believers. You see, up until this point, they were believers and saved in the Old Testament sense. Like Moses, David, Jeremiah, right? Daniel, 
They were saved in the Old Testament sense, believers in the Old Testament sense, but were not yet New Testament Christians when they followed Jesus before his crucifixion. And there are two reasons for that. Number one, Jesus had not yet died for their sins. And number two, up until right now, most of these disciples, now James and uh, John and, uh, uh, and Peter, had come to believe in the resurrection that morning when they went to the empty tomb. The ladies that went there to finish preparing Jesus' body for burial and saw the angel who said to him, why, you, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, he's risen. Go tell his brethren. They knew. But at this point, a vast majority of his disciples didn't. That's before Twitter, before emails, you know, and all this stuff, right? News traveled a lot slower in those days. And so for the bulk of Jesus' disciples, they still didn't know he had risen from the dead. So consequently, they couldn't be believers in the resurrection, right? And believing in the resurrection, guys, is essential for being a New Testament Christian. Uh, we just read it in, in Romans 10, verse 9. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you can't, you're not saved, right? But when Jesus appeared to them behind those closed doors in that upper room that evening, they saw the risen Christ. At first they doubted. They thought he's a ghost. He said, what are you, why are doubts arising in your heart? It's me. Look, my hands. Look, the spear wound. It's me. I'm not a ghost. Give me a hug. Does a spirit, does a ghost have flesh and bone as you see I have? Now, of course, they are definitely believers in the resurrection. And so now at that moment, they are now New Testament Christians. And to prove that and to highlight that, Jesus breathed on them and fulfilled his promise he made to them earlier, um, several days earlier, three days earlier, um, in the upper room, that the Holy Spirit was with them, and now at one point he will come inside of them. Why is this so important? I mean, Phil, why, why are you belaboring this point? What does it matter if they're different kind of believers than Moses and David? We're all going to heaven, right? So what's the big, what's the deal? What, why are you making a big deal out of what kind of believers they are? Because God makes a big deal out of it. You have to understand something. We have entered into the new covenant. Now, the old covenant under Moses was wonderful, but it was only looking forward to the new covenant. God said to his people in Jeremiah 31, there's coming a day I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Not like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand, led them out of Egypt, that covenant which they broke, I'm going to put my spirit inside of them and write my laws in their hearts. This is new covenant territory. God made promises to us in the new covenant that the Old Testament saints never enjoyed. They never understood what it was like to have God come inside the believer through the Holy Spirit, take up residence, and become one with that person. In the Old Covenant, the Spirit of God would come upon certain people for a ministry, like Saul, King Saul. At one point, he blew it and the Spirit was removed, right? David blew it. And, and prayed vehemently, Lord, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. We can't pray that prayer 
not that we would, in the new covenant. Because Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will abide with you, what, until you blow it? Forever. Forever. This is a new relationship. We have a relationship that Peter said angels long to look into. That's, that's weird. What does that mean? Angels stand, the good angels I'm talking about. Angels stand in the presence of God. They know God better than we know him. Not necessarily. In some ways, yes. But angels don't know what it's like to have the God of the universe move into a person's heart, take up residence, and become one with that person. This is unique to the new covenant. And guys, the great commission is a part of the new covenant. The new the Great Commission wouldn't be possible without the New Covenant. That covenant was instituted in the upper room three days earlier, communion, right? Broke the bread, they drank the cup. The next day, Jesus went to the cross and ratified the covenant with his own blood. The word covenant actually means to cut. It was often a blood covenant in those days. They would cut an animal to pieces and things. But Jesus, our Lamb of God, spotless Lamb of God, died the next day, ratifying the covenant and now we're seeing the outworkings of the covenant as it's now being put into operation this is all part of new testament theology this is why we need i'm sorry that so many christians are content as we said wednesday we started the book of romans as we were introducing the book we said you know it's time to leave the waiting pool of your christianity and start getting into the deeper things of god so a lot of Christians who are content to, to hang out in the waiting pool. They, they're just not interested in the deeper things of God. I'm saved. That's all I care about. There's nothing worse than a dumb Christian. I'm sorry. You should be able to articulate your faith to unbelievers, right? Always be ready to give a reason to anyone who asks you, to give an answer to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, right? There have been people, Christians, for 25 years. They, can, they can't articulate their faith. Sometimes I wonder if they even have it. But there's a lot of Christians who are lazy, who are carnal. All they want to do is be saved. I'm saved. That's all I care about. Who are hanging out in the shallow end of the pool. The pool being God's truth. It's time to get into the deeper things of God. That's what we're trying to do here. If you don't understand these things, how could you ever live them? Now, look. I want to wind this down, but I want to just let you know that much of what we're talking about today is actually, it's actually introductory to next week's message. Okay, but let me just leave that there, okay? Um, remember now, the whole context, guys, of all that we've just talked about, the whole context is Jesus commissioning his disciples to take the gospel into the world, and therefore... This whole topic is essential doctrine if we're going to know and understand what it means to be New Testament Christians. And if we're going to be, then be able to successfully fulfill the Great Commission. Turn back to John 14 if you've left there. Let me revisit a few things that we talked about when we were in John 14. I'm not going to get into anything in detail. You've, we've already studied it. But for the sake of the new folks, let me just touch on it, because this is where we are in John's Gospel, talking about these very things again. John 14, verse 15. 
If you love me, keep my commandments, Jesus said to his disciples, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another what? Helper, that he may abide with you. This helper may abide with you forever. The helper is the spirit of truth. The word helper is the Greek word prokletos. It comes from two separate Greek words, para, alongside, and kaleo, the Greek verb to call. And so very simply, a prokletos is somebody who has been called alongside someone else for the purpose of helping them or comforting them. Often used of a counselor. Somebody has undergone some tragic loss or something very traumatic has gone on, and a counselor would come alongside to help them give them comfort and try to help them out of this this terrible pit of sorrow okay the word was also used of an attorney in those days if you were accused of a crime uh then you would you would hire uh, a proclitas an attorney who would come alongside and help you with this case right so helper comforter that's why a lot of the translations don't translate the holy spirit as the helper they translate as the comforter same idea, okay? Now, I want you to know that Jesus himself was the first parakletos. He was the first parakletos, the first comforter. God the Son, Jesus Christ, became a man. He then came alongside the disciples physically to help them. Three and a half years he did, right? To help and teach them God's truth, help them with issues, uh, to help them understand God's word and ultimately to train them for the work of the kingdom, which again is fulfilling the Great Commission. Upon returning to his Father in heaven, he prayed the Father, and the Father sent back the Holy Spirit, another helper. This helper would be an indispensable source of power in the work Jesus commissioned us to do for the kingdom. Right Again, you cannot do the work of God in the energy of your flesh. You have to do the work of God in the power of the Spirit. Otherwise, you're not going to get anywhere. And too many people are frustrated and fruitless in their ministries because they're trying to do it in their own strength. Get the book, They Found the Secret. I think I have a few extra copies. Incredible book. I've read it about eight times. It's little short biographies of people who were Christians who started out serving God in their own strength because nobody really ever taught them what we're talking about. And they worked and worked and worked until they were completely worn out. One of those was my pastor. He's not in the book. I'm just going to throw that out to you, though. Same testimony, Pastor Chuck. He worked and worked 17 years trying to do the work of God in his own strength. So exhausted, so broken about his fruitless ministry, he was about ready to, to give up when God spoke to him and said, Chuck, don't you remember what my word says? Not by power nor by might, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. And the Lord shall add to his church daily those being saved. He stopped striving and started just resting, abiding. And that's what this book talks about. Incredible how these men, women, eventually realized they weren't going to do the ministry in their own strength, no matter how hard they tried. Anyways. John 14. Jesus was talking about leaving his disciples soon. But he promised that he wasn't going to leave them alone like orphans. 
that he would send to them another helper to be with them. You see, he had commanded them to live a certain kind of life and commissioned them for a specific kind of work, both of which would have been impossible for them to accomplish without the supernatural helper known as the Holy Spirit. Now, the most important thing, and we'll just, I'll just kind of say this quickly, we'll, we'll end, and this kind of sets up next week. One of the most important things that Jesus ever said with regard to our, to our understanding of just who or what the Holy Spirit is. <gasps> what? What are you talking about? I'm trying to tell you that there are people out there who don't believe the Holy Spirit's a person. The Jehovah's Witnesses think he's an essence, a force, like electricity. He's not a real person. But the Bible teaches very clearly that he is the third person of the Trinity. He is God. He is a person. You can grieve him. You can, you can uh, disobey him. There's a, you, you can't do that with electricity or with a force. You can't grieve electricity. You can be grieved by electricity. Put your finger where it doesn't belong. I've done that as a kid. Stuck a fork, a knife in a light socket. Wow. Yikes. Anyways. Um, no, no. We know the Holy Spirit is a person. Okay? And um, one of the most important things that Jesus ever said about the Holy Spirit for our learning was um, his use of the key word, another. Verse 14, he will, verse six, uh, chapter 14, John, verse 16, he will, the Father will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth. There are two words for another in Greek. Heteros, which means another of a different kind. We get the word heterosexual out of that word. And then alas, which means another of exactly the same kind. Ice is exactly the same as water. It's just in a different form. Here Jesus used the phrase alas parakletas. In other words, what he is telling his disciples is, I'm going to send you another helper, another one, listen, exactly like me, but in a different form. Jesus came in physical form. This next helper would be a spirit. He will be God the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Again, guys, Jesus was the original Parakletas who for three and a half years came alongside the disciples to help and comfort them. In fact, in John 14 alone, he spends the entire chapter comforting them because earlier in chapter 13, he had said he was going away soon. And where he was going, they couldn't follow. And they were heartbroken, terrified, actually. They had gotten used to Jesus being with them. And so he moves into the 14th, our 14th chapter, obviously. It wasn't in the original. But after telling them at the end of chapter 13, he was going away, he knew their hearts were gripped with sorrow and grief. So he begins the 14th chapter by saying, Let not your heart be troubled, neither be afraid. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions, and so on. You can read for yourself. He spends the entire 14th chapter of John's Gospel comforting them because he had just dropped the bombshell that he was going away, and they couldn't follow him. They were grieved. But he went on to say in chapter 16, I'll just read verses 5 and 7, 
But now I go away to him who sent me. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I return to the Father. I'll pray the Father, and I will send you another helper. So guys, here's the question. Why go away at all? Speaking of Jesus. Why go away at all if he was only going to go away to the Father to send back God, the same God, in a different form? Why not just stay? You're going away. You're God in human form. You're going to go back to the Father. You're going to send us God in a different form. But why bother? Just stay. Well, there was a reason for that. The answer is that uh, to that is that Jesus, when he was on the earth physically, he was limited by that physical body to one place at a time. He could only be in Jerusalem or the Galilee or Jericho. He couldn't be in multiple places at one time. I mean, God is an omnipresent spirit. I mean, his presence is everywhere. And so was Jesus before his incarnation. Before he became flesh and blood, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. He was an omnipresent spirit called the word, John chapter 1. But when he became flesh and walked among us, he took on the limitations of a physical body. He got tired, he got hungry, and he was no longer omnipresent. When Jesus returned to the Father and the Holy Spirit was sent back in his place, that happened on Pentecost as recorded in Acts 2. Well, the Holy Spirit at that moment inhabited every believer in Christ that lived at that time and still does to this day, by the way, right? Whenever a person gets saved, the Holy Spirit comes inside of them. Uh, Romans um, 8 9 if anyone does not have the Holy Spirit inside of them, they're not even saved or a Christian. So nobody can say, well, I was a Christian, then the Holy Spirit came to me. No, no, because without the Holy Spirit, that's what it means to be born of the Spirit. You receive Christ, the Spirit of God moves in, you are now born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes up residence forever. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Now, the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus at his baptism, right? I think Luke 3 records that, among other places. And that's when he went out fulfilling his ministry, starting his ministry. Remember he said in Luke 4, he went to the synagogue in Nazareth. you, you got to study that in your own. We don't have time to get into it. In every synagogue, in every uh, place in the world, the same scripture is read every week. He goes to the synagogue in Nazareth. They're reading from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Talks about how Messiah is going to come. He reads it, closes the book, says, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You could have heard a pin drop, I'm sure. He had just declared himself to be the Messiah. But he did. He said, to start, he said, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. That's what the reading was. 
The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me to preach, and he has sent me to preach the good news. The Spirit of God, Jesus had to wait for the Spirit of God to come upon him before he started his public ministry. For us to think we can go out there and serve God and do ministry without the same power Jesus needed is absolutely mind-boggling that people would think that. Pentecost came and the Spirit of God was poured out. He took up residence in every believer in Christ throughout the entire, well, the world um, was limited mostly to that part of the world. But here's the deal, we'll close. Again, when Jesus had his physical body, he was limited. He could only be one place at a time, preaching, teaching, ministering. But he said there's coming a time John 14, 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these will he do, because I go to my Father. How is that possible? Jesus raised the dead. He walked on water. He turned water into wine. He calmed storms with a word. How in the world were they going to do greater things, all of us, how were we going to do greater things than Jesus did? Well, not in uh, magnitude, but in scope. You're not going to get more greater than raising dead people. That's about as great as a miracle gets, I think. But if every believer in Christ is now indwelt with the Holy Spirit, those miracles can take place all over the world, wherever there's a Christian. So the body of Christ is not limited anymore to one place at a time because the Spirit has come and is now indwelling all Christians and every part of the world. And so, guys, there is another promise, and I bring all this up in part to introduce next week. But there's another promise that Jesus made his disciples before leaving the earth and returning to his Father, a promise connected to the Holy Spirit and ultimately about us fulfilling the Great Commission. So we introduce it here. Come on back next time. I, I want to give you one more message on the subject. We'll move on. And um, so we'll talk about this next time. So God willing, come on back and let's continue studying. Today was sent by the Son, part one. Guess what next week's will be? Sent by the Son, part two. Thank you. All right. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that, well, you have placed in your word so many incredible things for us to learn, to understand, and then by your grace and through the strength of your spirit, apply into our lives and ministries. Lord, we ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. For your glory, we ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you guys. If there's anyone here today who has not prayed to receive Jesus as your Savior um, and would like to know more about what's involved, come on up here so we can talk with you and pray with you. And the uh, rest of you guys, may God bless your week. Uh, may he pour his spirit afresh upon every one of you and use you mightily for his glory. Time is short. Work is great. Laborers are few. May God send forth more laborers into the harvest. God bless you guys.